Welcome to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan, and my guest today is Alice Curry. She has served as the executive director of the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic since 1989. She has served on the League of American Orchestras as national chair of small-budget orchestras, and she's a past president of the IU Jacobs School of Music Alumni Association. She'll be retiring from her position with the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic in December of 2010 after 23 years of total service. Thanks for joining me, Alice. Thank you for asking me. Let's go way, way back. How did you get into music? Music has always been part of my life. I remember my godparents uh, in this little town over in Illinois where I grew up. In fact, I was on a farm outside of this little town. But my godparents had this old, old upright piano, and they didn't want it anymore. So they asked my parents if they would like to have the piano and maybe I could start taking piano lessons. And so one day this old clunker arrived, and my folks put it in the dining room. And so we had this piano, and of course I was, you know, just pounding away with my fingers. And then they got me started on piano lessons when I was about four or five years old by some lady in this little town in Illinois. And I've been in music ever since. So music was important to your folks, Yeah, my mom had played violin in her junior high and high school. My dad, I remember hearing him sing on Christmas Eve. He would sing the Christmas hymns at church on Christmas Eve. And he had this, I didn't realize it then, I thought, wow, he can really sing. But then I realized later on, my dad had this very rich baritone voice. And he could have been a pretty good singer if he'd had any training. And then on Sunday mornings when he was waiting for the rest of us to get ready for church, he'd sit down at the piano, whether it was that old clunker that we originally had or a better piano later on, and he would play by ear. He played the Notre Dame Victory March. He played the Beer Barrel Polka, (laughs) and he would just play by ear. And I didn't realize it, but those genes from my mom and dad, you know, came along with me when I was born. Tell me about someone who influenced you in high school. Well, in high school, the biggest influence in my life, and probably to this day, is a lady named Polly Anderson. She just turned 90 this year, and she's very much alive. I recently visited her when I went back for a, a mini reunion with some of my friends back in, in this little town in El- Tolono, Illinois. And Polly was our, our choral music teacher at our high school. She was one of the most encouraging, supportive people I've ever known. I first was the accompanist for what was then called the Boys Ensemble and the Girls Ensemble. One time we were just messing around with the girls ensemble and Polly heard me singing and she asked me to stay afterwards and she said sing for me and she sat down and played and I sang and she said okay you're no longer at the piano I want you in the group and then she had me start taking private lessons and develop my vocal cords and Polly is the one who encouraged me to audition for the school of music here at IU and she helped me with my audition. I still remember I did Un Bel D from Madame Butterfly, and I sang it in English, unfortunately. But uh, when I auditioned here, Margaret Harshaw was in the group, 
And she said, do you think you have a big voice? And I thought, how does she want me to answer that? And so I said, yes, I think I do. And she says, well, I do too. And I wish you had sung this in Italian. And if you'll study with me, I will have you learn it in Italian so that the next time you perform this will be done properly. And so I became a student of Margaret Harshaw, which was an absolute joy. It was because of Polly Anderson. A high school teacher. And you were a music educator, too. So surely down the road, there are some students saying that just about you as well. I hope so. I hope so. A teacher never knows where their influence is. And so you never know where you're going to influence somebody or be an inspiration. So I truly hope I influence somebody. Tell me about your time here at IU. Were were you a singer as well as a I was an education vocal major. Yeah. Yep. And came here not knowing a soul. Came from a little school. There were 72 in my high school graduating class and came here to this huge IU campus. And I was a fish out of water. But, you know, found my niche through the Singing Hoosiers. I became a member of the Singing Hoosiers. And so that became my niche on campus. I chose my sorority for it being close to the School of Music (laughs) so that when I had a late-night practice room, I didn't have too far to walk back to the sorority house. I also had really great teachers. I will never forget Peter DeLone. And that's a name that that precedes you, Annie. His reputation for back in the in the uh, '60s is just phenomenal. And I stayed here one summer so that I could have Theory Five under Peter Delone. Now, who takes Theory Five? You know, I don't know very many people, but just so I could have Peter or Doctor Delone. Coming from this tiny town in Illinois to the big campus of IU, what did your parents think? Were they supportive of you? They were. I hate to use the word in awe, but I think they were a bit in awe that I had auditioned and got into this school. I had visited other schools, but once I came to IU and saw the campus and met some of the faculty, this is where I wanted to be. Then from IU, let's let's work our way through your career. Where did you go after that? Taught um, in a Chicago suburb, LaGrange, Illinois, and that was back in the 66 through 68 school year. And those were the years that they were cutting out music and art. And there were two music teachers, and they fired me and kept him. And so then uh, I moved to Peoria, Illinois, and got involved in the music curriculum there. They cut out music, art, and P.E. And then I moved to the Quad Cities of Iowa and taught for one year in an inner city school in Iowa. And I just decided... Alice, you are not an outstanding teacher like some of your teachers that you have had. And so I was reading the paper one day, and here was an ad from Xerox Corporation saying, yes, Xerox is hiring new sales reps. And I thought, well, I can do that because I'd always sold, I'd always won all the prizes for selling the most Girl Scout cookies or the most, you know, whatever, you know, just, just whatever. And so I thought, well, I can sell a machine. It took them four months to decide whether they could hire a female. And they hired me, and I was one of the first female sales reps in the country for Xerox. So I had that career for six years. And then um, my husband and I 
we're moving around and and we're deciding to have a family and and so I just became a stay-at-home mom until we moved to Columbus, Indiana in 1983. And then you came back to music. And I came back to music. Well, let's hear a piece of music right now before we get too far into your life in this conversation. Let's start with When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. Why do you like this one so much? I like this one because it's me. My maiden name was O'Byrne. Very Irish ancestry. We still have uh, relatives in Ireland. I have visited Ireland several times. My brother and I have stood on the land where the home was, where the ancestral home was in in, um, County Leitrim, Ireland. I love being Irish. I'm wondering why, for it never should be there at all. With such power in your smile, sure a stone you'd beguile, so there's never a teardrop should fall. When your sweet lilting laughter like some fairy song, and your eyes twinkle bright as can be, You should laugh all the while. Traditional Irish tune, When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. I'm here with Alice Curry. My name is Annie Corrigan, and you're listening to WFIU Profiles. So you've been in and out of music early in your life, music ed major, music teacher, and then you sort of went the way the saleswoman and the stay-at-home mom what brought you back to music? What in your soul said, I have to have a life in music? <laughs> I'm not sure it was in my soul, but when we moved to Columbus, there was an organist who has who who has a bit of fame here in this area, Dan McKinley. And he was the organist at First Christian Church. And somehow or other, he had heard that I was in Columbus, that I had a music background, and he was on the board of the Columbus Pro Musica, which was the parent of the Columbus Symphony at that time. And he said, we'd like you to be on our board of directors. So that was 1985. And so I was on the board of directors for two years. And it was time to move away from that orchestra or move that orchestra down a different road or, or whatever you know we needed to take because there were more people on stage than there were in the audience. And so in 19, the 1986-87 season, the board decided that we wanted to go in a very different direction. And knowing that we were so close to IU and with all of the, all of the um, um, support and, and uh, access that we had to people here, three of us came over to IU and met with Thomas Baldner, who was the head of the orchestral program, and asked if he had any doctoral candidates or master's candidates who might enjoy conducting a small orchestra in Columbus, Indiana. And he jumped up, said, I know exactly who you need, 
ran to his phone, dialed a number, said, oh, he's not home. And the rest is sort of history. It was David Bowden. And we hired David in the summer of 87. And David and I, I was going in as president of the Pro Music Award. And David and I together put together that first season, the 87-88 season. And um, we've been going ever since. Wow. I had no idea you that's how that? began. No, that's amazing. And now you play in the orchestra. That's right. That's absolutely right. I wonder, uh, what about you made you want to be behind the scenes of an orchestra like this? It seemed to fit. I had a knack for marketing, partly because of my experience with Xerox. It was sort of easy for me to raise money, especially back then when we had this new idea and this new vision and this new nonprofit organization that was going to help Columbus be an even better community than it was because any community of any size has a good orchestra. And we were telling the people of Columbus back then in 87, come with us, come build this orchestra with us. And so fundraising was fairly easy back then, too. That's amazing. Fundraising was easy. Well, for me it was. <laughs> My philosophy of fundraising is share your vision, share your dream. And I had a vision, and I certainly had a dream for this orchestra. And I gathered other people into sharing that with me. So, so think back to 1986, 1987. When you guys were forming the orchestra and starting to have this dream, what did you envision some 20 years down the road back then? I think what we envisioned is that David probably wouldn't be with us Uh, that he would have moved on to a bigger orchestra. I certainly didn't envision that I would still be there. Uh, I don't know where I've envisioned myself going, but I didn't think 20 years later, 23 years later, I'd still be there. But David's still there. He loves Columbus. He loves the orchestra. And I'm still there, I guess, just because I'm still there. Um, I don't know whether I was chicken to move on, or, but I do love the orchestra. I love what it has become. And I'm very proud of knowing that I've played a role in helping it become what it is. Well, you said that raising money is easy for you, which is a very good thing for an executive director to say, because that's one of the biggest jobs that you have. It is. It is. So what are some of the other challenges? Well, fundraising now is a challenge. And we don't get the funds from the national, the state, or the local arts organizations that we did 23 years ago. And so that has become a challenge. As the economy has fluctuated, fundraising has been a challenge. But we have some funders, some businesses in Columbus who have been with us from day one, and they have not faltered. They said, you know, keep on doing what you're doing and we'll be here for you. And Columbus is a can-do community. Columbus, for your listeners who don't know about Columbus, come visit Columbus. It really is a unique community. The architecture is world famous. And the orchestra just fits in. It's, it's that the quality orchestra fits in with the quality of Columbus. And so 
mostly it's been an easy sale. Mostly. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the financial situation. So we're still knee deep in a, a recession, mm-hmm. you could say. Yep. Have your big sponsors still stuck with you through this? Yes, they have. They really have. Last year, as you know, since you play in the orchestra, we cut rehearsals. We had some staff reductions, and most of us involved with the orchestra took some pretty hefty pay cuts. We went into the nine ten season budgeting for a $38,000 deficit. We just ended our nine ten season on July 31, and we had a $14,000 surplus. And... I, it just worked. It it just worked. We really kept the line on expenses. We didn't spend a nickel that we didn't have to spend. And I worked extra hard to bring in revenues. We budgeted conservatively. And yet we had very good luck uh, with our sponsors. Uh, so that part of the revenue side was was very encouraging. We had really good single ticket sales last year, last season. It was a marvelous season of variety. And so see, maybe they weren't all season subscribers, but there were maybe one or two concerts that, that people wanted to come here. And so our single ticket sales were very good last year. And we had a gala that just knocked our socks off. We had a net of almost $70,000 from our gala. And again, it's because we kept expenses very low so that our revenues could be as good as possible. Well, let's talk about the attendance. Hearing that your single ticket sales were up, Mm -hmm. very encouraging. Mm -hmm. So over these past 23 years, have you seen trends in the sorts of concerts that bring in unique visitors, single ticket visitors? We have. It'd be interesting to hear your response to that as a musician, too, Annie. But I think when we present groups like Five by Design or we bring back Dan McKinley, who I talked about earlier, Dan is such a well-known person in Columbus. And when he plays that Aeolian Skinner organ, I mean, it's like you're listening to the organ up in heaven. And Last year, we did a sports theme concert that brought in people that probably had never been to a Philharmonic concert, and yet they wanted to come because we honored sports heroes from Columbus. Chuck Taylor with, you know, Chucks uh, is from Columbus. And we, our uh, cross-country uh, teams were number one in the state last year, so we honored them. And and Sam Simmermaker is a legend on local radio in Columbus. And so those things. But then, you know, David also programs the classics. And it's wonderful that people can stay in Columbus and hear the classics, that they don't have to come to Bloomington or go to Indianapolis or go to Louisville or Cincinnati. They can stay right there and hear marvelous musicians making wonderful music. And so they have heard the classics that they never realized they would ever hear, let alone that, oh my gosh, I really like this Bartok, or I really like this Barber. I never knew I'd like Barber. That was terrific. We hear that all the time. So 
variety, you know, has been sort of the password. You know, we only do eight concerts a year. It's hard to do a lot of variety. You know, we can't be the ISO or the Louisville Orchestra or the Cincinnati Orchestra, but we can be the best that we can be for the community of Columbus. We'll talk more about the size of the orchestra and where you think orchestras of that size are going in the future. Let's stick a little bit longer with attendance. Mm -hmm. It's great when you get first-time visitors to a concert. The thing is getting them to come again. Mm -hmm. So as an executive director, how do you make that happen? We try to make our events events, that they don't just walk in the door, sit down in their seat, get a program book, and listen to a concert, get up and leave. David does Musically Speaking, which is right before the concert, where he talks either with a musician who maybe has a significant role that evening in the in the concert or with the guest artists so that they get a behind-the-scenes look at what they're going to hear that evening and a behind-the-scenes look at the musician or the guest artist. After the concert, we have receptions. And we try to invite a variety of people to those receptions. And sometimes we hear of a first-timer, and so we'll invite that person to the concert, to the uh, reception. So it's making it an evening out uh, more than just the music. This year, for the 10-11 season, we've got uh, something that we're offering for the first time called Buy One, Get One Half Off. And so we have contacted everyone who has been a single ticket buyer, giving them this opportunity to become a subscriber so that they pay for their first ticket, then they get the second one half, 50% off. We also have taken our flex tickets, which nobody really understood, and, and it just didn't go very far, and turning that into pick three. And people can pick three concerts, you know, maybe they're snowbirds and they go to Arizona or Florida in the wintertime, but they're around for three concerts. So they pick those three concerts and they get, you know, a big discount. And yet they will get good seats assigned to them before the single ticket buyers come in and, and buy their seats. So you're constantly evolving and trying to mm-hmm. change and meet the times. Yes. I'll be really curious to hear how that works. Those all sound like really great ideas. Looking ahead also to the uh, 10... 11 season. You said last season you had a surplus. So I'm wondering if that's going to affect how you operate in this upcoming season because you have this money that you didn't know you were going to have. Well, it's interesting. With that money, we have already reinstated some rehearsals for the musicians, which I'm sure makes you very happy. It makes me very happy. As well as your colleagues. Because there were some concerts last year where you were on the edge of your seat. And so... That was first and foremost the primary thing that the board and staff wanted to do was reinstate the the, uh, rehearsals. We will reinstate a little bit of the pay cuts that happened, and yet the economy is dictating to us, don't get too excited here. You know, continue that conservative aspect that you had last year. We also have an issue in Columbus called remodeling and construction at our high schools. And so where we have played most of our concerts at the Columbus North Urn Auditorium, we cannot be there for three of our concerts this year. 
And so we're going to East for two of our concerts and to First Christian Church for one of our concerts. And East has 150 fewer seats than North does. So that's going to affect our attendance because our Christmas concert will need to be at East. So there will be some issues this year that we have no control over that I think will affect our single ticket income. Let's hear another piece of music. All right. So this is uh, The Sicilian by Gabrielle Foray. Yes. What about this one do you like? I love this piece. As you know, you asked me to pick three pieces, (laughs) and that was the toughest assignment I've had since Peter DeLone's theory class, I think, Annie, because there isn't much music that I don't like. And maybe I should say, well, it's the piece I'm listening to at the moment, but Foray's Sicilian has been a favorite of mine. I, I think I first heard it in high school. And it's just so soothing. And so uh, it reaches down into a person's soul. And, you know, in, in some troubling times in my life, you know, I find that CD and I put it on and listen to it. And it, it relaxes me and it soothes me. And our principal flute has played that piece several times, and she already knows that I want her to play that piece at my funeral. Music of Gabrielle Foray. That was The Sicilian. I'm here with Alice Curry. My name is Annie Corrigan, and you're listening to WFIU Profiles. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. I'm Annie Corrigan. I'm here with Alice Curry, who's the executive director of the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic, soon to be the former executive director. You'll be stepping down in December. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the organization is going to miss you after 23 years or so. Well, I hope so, but everyone's replaceable. And so the next person sitting in my chair will come with new ideas, and maybe that person will be around for 23 years also. Let's look big picture here almost a quarter century that you've been doing this job. How has classical music changed? The support for classical music, the attendance, the sorts of concerts that are put on. If you could just sort of broadly talk about that. I think technology has been the biggest change. You know, people can download anything now. 
I saw a statistic that the hundreds of thousands of illegal downloads every day is just phenomenal. And so I really, truly believe that has made a difference. And yet the live concert experience, in my opinion, and in in the opinion of, of many of our loyal supporters, has made a difference in their lives. We have people who were at our first concert in September of 87 who will be at our first concert in September of 10 also. And they've been there all those years in between uh, because they love the live concert experience. And so I hope that, yes, people can download their favorites, but I do hope that they continue to experience that live concert. And, you know, maybe there's a, a little mistake or maybe there's just a phenomenal experience that, that the audience and the musicians are one and you can't hear a pin drop. Well, you can't get that from your iPod. And so those are changes and yet I hope not permanent changes or, or extensive changes. The other is that People want instant gratification. I'm finding that sponsors lean toward sponsoring the more popular concerts or the more uh, like the sports concert last year. I mean, that was a one time, probably will never do it again event, but I didn't have any problem getting sponsors for that concert. And so those are things that are changing. And as I mentioned earlier, the support that isn't there from the national, state, and local arts organizations like there used to be. And that's just because governments are cutting their funds that they can then distribute on. Let's talk about the graying of the audience. This is something that always comes up when you talk about classical music, that once this generation of audience members dies, well, then we don't have anybody to replace them with. And this is a conversation that always comes up. You've been around 23 years now with this organization. What's your perspective on that? I agree. The audience is graying. Our average audience member is 53, 55 years old. But the audience for the New York Philharmonic is 53, 55 years old. The audience for the Indianapolis Symphony, 53, 55 years old. Now, the New York Philharmonic, the ISO, they have so many more concerts that they can do. And they have a lobby where they can serve wine. They can bring in the young professionals for a 50-minute concert. You know, there's no intermission. It's right after work. It's five thirty, six o'clock in the evening. They can have wine and hors d'oeuvres, you know, in their lobby. We can't do that in Columbus. We can serve the hors d'oeuvres, just can't serve the wine because we're in a school. So... Those things are changing with the larger orchestras. We have some parents in Columbus, and I want to share this story because it's really terrific. They will call and say, I'd like to bring our children to Saturday night's concert. Will they enjoy the first half or the second half? And we'll talk about that and say they come to the first half. Then they leave at intermission so that the kids don't fall asleep or become so bored that they start wiggling and squirming and say, Mom, do I have to come back? But there was something in that first half 
that caught their attention, or maybe their parents played it for them at home so they heard it before coming to the concert. And so those children are going to grow up understanding music, understanding classical music, having some favorites, and knowing that a concert isn't an awful thing, that it's not for the elite or the stuffed shirts. We also have in every community, there's probably a young professionals organization. And and the Philharmonic is trying to find ways to involve the young professionals in Columbus. This buy one, get one half off is an opportunity for young people just starting out to come to a concert without breaking their budget. We have a wonderful strings program. And we've got this mascot named Phil Harmonic, our penguin mascot. And before almost every concert, we have Phil's Family Jam. And these little kids, ages two through nine, come to Phil's Family Jam. And Phil introduces them to classical music. And after he does his shtick out in the lobby and talks with them and that sort of thing and interviews a musician or the guest artist, then they get to go into the auditorium for a special segment of the rehearsal that has been planned just for them. So that's introducing those young children and their parents to the music. Often we have had the parents say, do you have any tickets left for tonight's concert? I'd like to find a babysitter and come back. So we're helping a little bit that way. That's a good point that the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic has a strong music education Mm -hmm. program. Talk to me very briefly about that. We have always, since we started the orchestra in 1987, in 1989 we started Music for Strings. And it's been just gangbusters ever since then. Over 10% of our budget is devoted to education. And that's education from the two-year-old coming to Phil's Family Jam through, musically speaking, you know, with the 50, 60, 70, 80-year-olds. We've even got a few 90-year-olds that come to our concerts. They also come to to musically speaking. And so our education component is very, very strong. It's very important to our mission and what we do as the Philharmonic. You mentioned that you started with the Columbus Pro Musica. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way, it changed to the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. Was the name change part of the, the vision that you had when you first started? Yes, because there are two orchestras in Columbus. The Columbus Symphony still exists. And they are an orchestra made up mostly of volunteers, so there are no auditions. And if somebody played, you know, trombone in high school, and it's been in the case for the last 10 or 15, 20 years, they can dust off that trombone and find an outlet for their music making. The Philharmonic, well, we became the Columbus Philharmonic in about the early, sometime in the early 90s, because we wanted to show the difference between the two organizations. And there were so many Columbus symphonies in the country, but there weren't very many Columbus Philharmonics. And so we inserted Indiana in there to show that we were the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic. And so, you know, mostly we call ourselves the Philharmonic, our Doing business as name is Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic. 
So now let's listen to another piece of music. This is music of Felix Mendelssohn, the Italian symphony, the first movement. Ah, this this movement, people are going to recognize it from breaking away yes. from any number of commercials or other movies. What is it about this movement that you like? This has sort of been my life. I listened to that piece, and my life has just been a swirl of activity. I don't know if it's if I'm proud of it or not, but I really can multitask. And this piece represents multitasking. So that's why I chose the Italian symphony, especially that first movement. We heard music there of Felix Mendelssohn, the first movement from his Italian symphony, music that won't take no for an answer. I love that. (laughs) I'm Annie Corrigan. You're listening to WFIU's Profiles. Alice Curry, the executive director of the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic, is my guest today. I read a funny story that you wrote recently, or just a funny comment, that now that you're retiring as the executive director... When you see people walk down the street, they won't have to cross the street so they can avoid passing you. What What's that all about? I had somebody tell me once that they crossed the street because if they met me and I had the opportunity to say hello, I would try to reach in their wallet and get some money for the Philharmonic. And I've joked about my little tin cup, you know, all these years because – you know, I want everybody to enjoy the Philharmonic. I want them to support the Philharmonic. And the way they can do that, if they aren't on our board of directors or, you know, whatever, is through a financial donation. So that was that story. So maybe people will stay on the same side of the street and talk to me. <laughs> What's it going to be like sitting in the audience and not being behind the scenes anymore? It will be tough. It really will be tough because one of the joys of this job is knowing that I've been responsible in some way, whether it's the finance or the marketing or, you know, whatever, in the product that is on stage for that concert. And many times at a rehearsal, I'll be the only one in the hall listening to the rehearsal. And it's like all of you are playing just for me. And that has been wonderful. So... You know, if you look out at a rehearsal sometime, Annie, and you see me sitting there, just know I slipped in the door because I want that experience again. Definitely. Uh, Tell me what compelled you to step down. I don't think it was any one thing. It's just, you know, my husband and I met with our accountant, and he told us that 
it would be okay, you know, because I'm at the uh, Social Security age. And there were just a variety of reasons that when you put all of them, you know, down on a sheet of paper and did pros and cons, it came out to a pro that it's time. And there's always somebody in the wings who can do it better. There's somebody out there that the board of directors can find who's experienced in the arts, who's experienced in the orchestra industry, who will bring some fresh ideas. The orchestra industry in our budget size has a wonderful email sharing, and it's a a listserv of the executive directors, and we share ideas. And so I get some of my ideas there, but it's time to bring in some new blood. And it just seemed, okay, December 31st is that time. Well, let's look ahead for the orchestra. Orchestras of this budget size, as you said, where do you see them growing? How do you see them remaining relevant in five years, 10 years, 20 years, as we work our way out of the recession? I believe, and this is not something that, you know, that anybody else has said uh, to me. But I truly believe that orchestras of our size, and we're, you know, somewhere between six and seven hundred thousand. Been a couple of years where we're a little bit over seven hundred thousand. We need to become relevant to our community. We need to involve other organizations in our community. Maybe we do a concert that benefits them, or that we do, you know, maybe we we work with the schools, and do something relative to education. And we just need, we need to reach out to the rest of the community. We need to work with our visitor center, because our, you talked about butts and seats earlier. They need bodies in beds, you know, because of the, of the hotel motel tax. Well, let's work with the visitor center to market some of our concerts, so that they could do something on a weekend when we're having a concert and they draw people to Columbus. And our concert happens to be a portion of what draws those people. So it's it's becoming relevant. It's not only about the music anymore. I think it has to be something else. And that probably goes along with our society. You know, we need to be more visual. Well, big orchestras are becoming more visual. They've got the big screens and and they've got a a cameraman who can point out the oboe section and and feature the oboe section, you know, during a certain movement of the piece. Our budget doesn't allow for that right now, but maybe we need to find the funds, have somebody underwrite that. So because we are a visual society and I think combining the visual with the oral is something that needs to happen down the road. Looking ahead to December, the final concert where you'll be the executive director. Have you thought of your farewell speech? No, I just know that I'll cry. My final speech might be at our annual meeting in October. But at the Christmas concert, you know, I'll probably say a few words. I just know that I'm going to have to have some Valium or something to get me through that evening. Because it will be tough. I don't look forward to leaving, not at all, but I look forward to that final concert. Thank you. 
And thank you for coming in. Alice Curry is the executive director of the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic. You've been listening to WFIU's Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. The program you just heard was recorded in August of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.